When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest news from the battlefront, discuss Ukraine and the EU, and we have a double bill of interviews from Conservative MP Alicia Kearns, Chair of the UK's Foreign Affairs Committee, and Dmitry Nataluka, People's Deputy of Ukraine, from the Servants of the People Party. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 5th of October, one year and 223 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols, Europe editor James Crisp, and assistant comment editor Francis Sternley. I started by asking Dom for the latest updates from Ukraine. So we start today, as we did yesterday, we were talking about this odd raid on the western point of uh, Crimea, Cape Tarkankut, supposedly uh, jet skis and what have you, overnight Wednesday, Thursday. The news came yesterday from Russia's MOD, so I wasn't able to verify the information prior to the podcast, so just reported it straight with all the usual caveats. More details emerged over the last day. A video published by Ukraine's military intelligence, so the GUR, showed a number of commandos on jet skis apparently making it ashore in this, this nighttime attack. They claimed to have inflicted fire damage on the Moscow occupiers, their words, but later admitted to having taken casualties in a gun battle, and that chimes with Russia's statement about that one soldier was killed. Captions on this GUR video said the special unit called Timur landed on Crimea and unfurled the Ukrainian flag. Black and white drone footage, apparently from an infrared camera, showed two small vessels approaching a deserted shoreline. Then another clip showed six jet skis or small boats, whatever they were, in in shallow water. Crew members are seen dismounting, grounding their vehicles on the sand, wading ashore. And then the final shot in colour, lit by White light, which is always a risky move in, when he's deployed, showed a number of commandos d- displaying the GOR flag. Now, no commentary or sound on the video. The men's faces were pixelated. GOR didn't say where the raid took place, but a spokesman for GOR told Ukrainska Pravda there was a battle with the Russian occupiers. There are many killed and wounded among the invaders' personnel. However, they also said there are losses among Ukrainian defenders. Now, Russia's state-owned RII Novosti published footage of an abandoned jet ski and showed the interrogation of a man who identified himself as a member of the GUR Special Forces. This man, who we see sitting shirtless in in an interrogation room, hands tied behind his back, told his interrogators that the mission was to display the flag and film footage of the landing. So not sure about that. The raid obviously follows a series of amphibious missions targeting Russian assets in Crimea and elsewhere in the Black Sea. Mid-August, you may remember, Marine commandos on rigid-hulled boats, ribs, rigid-hulled inflatable boats, attacked two oil and gas platforms to the east of Snake Island. Then a few weeks later, on August the 24th, commandos on speedboats and jet skis again attacked an electronic warfare centre in the same area Russia said was targeted overnight, Wednesday, Thursday. On that occasion, commandos from what was called the, the Brotherhood Unit, landed near the villages Olenivka and Mayak on the Cape, but they were spotted before they could reach their target. They engaged in a firefight with Russian troops while withdrawing and reportedly used an anti-tank rocket to, to hit the building from the sea before, before speeding off. It's quite what this is, we're not entirely sure. It's not unlike, uh, or, or it's not uh, uncommon, I should say, for units in the GUR 
I'm told to just try lots of stuff and see what works. So jet skis are quite noisy, if anyone's ever played with these things before. So it's not the, the stealthiest of insertion methodologies. And uh, and if you're yeah, exfiltrating under fire, it's not the ideal solution. But maybe they're just they're trying to see what works and they're, they're going to adapt and innovate and what have you. Anyway, staying on the maritime theme and possibly linked to Ukraine's increased strikes on Crimea recently, Russia has transferred, we believe, several Black Sea Fleet vessels from Sevastopol to Novorossiysk in Russia. This is likely an effort to protect them from the continued Ukrainian strikes. So satellite imagery published on October the 1st and 3rd this week, earlier this week, shows Russia transferred at least 10 vessels, thought to include two Admiral Grigorovich-class frigates. First, the Admiral Makarov, the most recently built of her class, commissioned less than six years ago, the current flagship of the Black Sea Fleet after the Moscow was sunk. The second one was the Admiral Essen, now also thought to have been moved, three diesel submarines, five landing ships and several small missile ships. Satellite imagery taken on October 2nd shows four Russian landing ships and one kilo-class sub remaining in Sevastopol and a Project 22160 patrol ship. That's another new vessel. That class was only commissioned in 2018. Reportedly for the first time in the port of Fyodosia, that's on eastern Crimea, so a line due east, almost due east from Sevastopol on the other side of Crimea. It suggests Russian forces might be trying to move Black Sea Fleet elements away um, from Sevastopol to bases further in their rear. And we'll come back later and talk about what I think that might mean. But again, sticking in the Black Sea, news today, Russia may be laying sea mines in the Black Sea to destroy cargo ships heading to and from Ukrainian ports. This comes from the British saying the declassified intelligence. James Cleverly, who's Britain's foreign secretary, he said on Twitter this morning, Declassified intelligence released today shows that Russia may be using uh, sea mines to target civilian shipping in the Black Sea. Putin is stopping food getting to the world's most vulnerable. The world is watching. Now, the foreign office here said Moscow wanted to damage Ukraine's economy by halting the grain exports, um, but they would seek to blame the sinking of any civilian vessels on Kyiv. Foreign Office has previously warned Russia's Black Sea Fleet has fired cruise missiles on a Liberian-flagged cargo ship in August. They were intercepted by Ukraine's air defences. But obviously the news comes as Ukraine attempts to ramp up the, the maritime trade again in grain. Yesterday it said a dozen vessels were ready to head into its port, while another 10 were stopped and ready to leave. Maritime tracking data this from this morning suggests three ships entered Odessa ports in the last few hours. Now, we know Russia's sought to pressure these ports by with drone and missile attacks. Last night was no different. Infrastructure was hit in uh, Odessa and Mykolaiv regions. Ukrainian authorities say their air defences brought down 24 of 29 drones. Apparently, they were apparently destroyed over the, the southern region and also the central Kirovrad region. No information there about casualties. But according to the British Foreign Office estimates, Moscow has so far damaged 130 port facilities and destroyed 300,000 tonnes of grain since withdrawing from the Black Sea, the grain deal, and enforcing or trying to enforce a de facto blockade. It's not actually a blockade legally, but that's what they're trying to achieve. Foreign Secretary James Cleverly said Russia's pernicious targeting of civilian shipping in the Black Sea demonstrates Putin's total disregard for civilian lives and the needs of the world's most vulnerable. Now then, on to land... Intense fighting taking place south of Bakhmut as uh, Ukraine is attempting to push past the railway line there in the village of Klishchivka. So in comments reported by Ukrainian media, a spokesman for the Eastern Armed Forces group said heavy fighting is currently underway in the area of the railway. We are trying to repel the enemy and gain a foothold on the achieved lines. The enemy continues to shell our positions with various types of artillery. So Klitschivka, this is about 5k south of the Bakhmut, and Drivka, another couple of kilometres south of that. They were recaptured by Ukraine last month. And the railway line they're talking about there comes out of Bakhmut, heads due south, wobbles around a bit, but basically goes due south, snakes just to the east of both of those settlements. Now, further to the west, continue heavy fighting takes place across the south. Ukraine has said what they uh, has got what they claim is a partial success around the village of Kapani. This is on the southern front, pushing out of uh, Robotine in all directions. A spokesman for the southern command said troops were advancing to the west. And a uh, prominent Russian military blogger, War Gonzo, 
said that Kiev was using artillery to break into Kapani, also fighting in Vobove, which is to the east, where Ukrainian forces have, have breached the, the main line of Russian defence, we think, and also down in the south, Novopropokivka, down to the south. And then into the, in the northeast, Russia is intensifying attacks, it looks like, in the Liman-Kupiansk direction of the front. So this is in Kharkiv and Luhansk oblasts. They're using ground forces and airstrikes. So Ilya Levlash, who's the spokesperson for the Eastern Group of Forces, was reporting that this morning. So we think Russia are trying to push in the northeast to draw, well, to, to push through as far as they can, but also to draw Ukrainian forces away from the south. And then just very finally, inside Russia now, dozens of towns left without power in the early hours of this morning after drone strikes against the power grid. This is from Russian media sources. So Baza, a news outlet with links to Russia's security services, said 14 settlements were cut off when a drone dropped two explosive devices on a substation in the city of Sudza about one o'clock in the morning. Sudza lies about 30 k's northeast of Sumy and five k's inside Russia. And then two hours later, another drone apparently attacked a substation in the village of Glushko, same region, leaving 53 settlements without electricity. So it looks like Ukraine might be having a go at the, the infrastructure, electricity infrastructure inside Russia. Well, thank you very much for that, Dom. As you said, we'll come back to some of the analysis and implications of the news from the Black Sea later. Francis, Dom has talked us through a lot of updates. Lots of these, of course, have huge political implications. What have you been looking at? Thanks, David. Obviously, there will be increased attention in political circles to the story Dom just reported on there relating to more mines being laid in the Black Sea by Russia, seemingly an attempt to stall the alternative routes Ukraine is seeking to find for its grain exports. But the major political row this morning relates to Russian plans to build a permanent naval base in the breakaway Georgian province of Abkhazia. For the Georgians, this sets the stage for a nightmare scenario, their term, of the Ukraine war spreading across the Black Sea. That's coming from a former Georgian defence minister, who I'll quote from in a second. For context, the self-styled president of the Russian-backed region told a Russian newspaper that a deal had been signed for a Russian base in the province's Ochamcha region. Roland has the story and is writing up as we speak for our website. But the quote from that Georgian defence minister does not mince his words. So he was minister during the 2008 Russian invasion. And he said in a statement, This is a major development which will ratchet up tensions in the region. And it is crystal clear now that Russia aims to drag Georgia into the current conflict in Ukraine. Ukraine has been hugely successful at targeting Russia's navy in Crimea, with the result being that the Kremlin now feels it needs to relocate. In addition, Putin is also sending a signal to the West that it needs to stay out of Georgia. The nightmare scenario for the West is that Russia starts launching attacks on Ukraine from territory that is legally Georgia's, or alternatively, that Ukraine seeks feels obliged, sorry, to strike first in Georgia's direction. So this has all the hallmarks of a developing story, so we'll be sure to monitor it closely. But while we're on the Black Sea, I think the aforementioned withdrawal of the bulk of its Black Sea fleet from its main base in occupied Crimea, of course acknowledging how Ukrainian missile and drone strikes are challenging Moscow's hold on that peninsula, is a really significant moment. As we discussed at the special video episode in Washington, the idea that Crimea is some kind of red line due to its strategic importance to the Russian military is fast evaporating. The weapons Kyiv have been able to launch on the area has made it too much of a target for secure future operations as a base and have effectively turned it into another part of Ukrainian territory occupied by Russia, and little more than that. That matters, as it erodes one of the central arguments that has meant Crimea was seen as a different entity by certain Western powers, one that had to be respected because of its importance for Russian defence, a narrative that Moscow has been very, very keen to exploit. So we'll be watching that too. But on to other matters. The European Political Community Summit is about to get underway in Granada, southern Spain. Our very own Joe Barnes is there and he's currently sending through reflections to our Ukraine live blog. After migration, the second main agenda point is Ukraine, he says, adding that some media points were saying that Zelensky wouldn't come. But he has actually, very much a breaking news story, just arrived 
And he's already given a few remarks. He said that Russia will rebuild its military and attack European states within five years if Ukraine cannot keep up its counteroffensive. Here speaking, he said that uh, various European countries border the terrorist state, and in fact, Russian propagandists and officials talk about them as the next targets of their aggression. Targets. That is exactly the word they use. If Russia is allowed to adapt now, by 2028, it will have restored the military potential that we have destroyed and will be strong enough to attack countries in the focus of its expansion. So I think very clear much a, a sense there of what President Zelensky thinks is at stake. That's his messaging to European leaders. Given Slovakia has allegedly halted weapons deliveries to Ukraine following the election victory of Robert Fico or Fico, I imagine that that will also be a core issue of discussion. The Armenia-Azerbaijan conflict is apparently dead in the water as an issue. Leaders had hoped the summit would be a good chance to get them together for peace talks. But Azerbaijan was frustrated with France and Germany for their perceived pro-Armenian statements and alleged weapons donations to Armenia. So that seems to be off the table for now. Leaders, as we say, have begun arriving and we've heard some statements about Ukraine. The European Council president has recalled to journalists the moment Zelensky told him that Russia had invaded Ukraine. Speaking to the Irish Times, Charles Michel said, I will never forget President Zelensky's call at around three in the morning on February 24th last year. It's a full scale invasion, he told me. Nor can I forget the council meeting that very evening. As soon as Zelensky left the screen on which he'd been speaking to us, I knew that we were facing a defining moment for Europe. It was clear to the 27 heads of state or government and myself that this was an attack not only on Ukraine, but also on our system of democratic values. We decided to support Ukraine with all means necessary, humanitarian, financial, and even for the first time in the history of the EU, military. But that said, it's not all roses this morning. Leaked analysis about what it would mean if Ukraine were to join the EU shows the level of unease, some might even say anger, from countries and certain figures about what it would mean for their own economies, something James is going to talk about in a moment. But just to give a sense of this, former European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker, I think it's fair to say a controversial figure in Europe today, has slammed the possibility of Ukraine joining the EU, lambasting the country as massively corrupt, his term. So to quote him in an interview with a German outlet, he said, anyone who has had anything to do with Ukraine knows that this is a country that is corrupt at all levels of society. Despite its efforts, it is not ready for a session. It needs massive internal reform processes. Making false promises to Ukrainians regarding EU accession would be neither good for the EU nor for Ukraine. You shouldn't make false promises to the people in Ukraine who are up to their necks in suffering, he added. I'm very angry about some voices in Europe who are telling Ukrainians they can become members immediately. Now, these kind of interventions speak to why it has been such a political priority for Zelensky to work to try and expunge corruption from his country and to do so publicly. He knows the perception comes at considerable political cost. And as we heard in my interview with Victoria Coates yesterday, which I'll comment on later, this idea of alleged corruption in Ukraine, systemic corruption today, is a major impediment. Many Ukrainians will no doubt say what Mr. Juncker and others fail to recognise, that this war is a catalyst for the domestic change Europe wants to see within the country and that it has been working towards for years, seeking to purge the influence of oligarchs and corrupt practices instilled during the Soviet era and which has haunted Ukraine for decades. If Ukraine were to lose this war, then a broken country would be far more, not less, likely to become corrupt in a way harmful to Europe's interests abandoning their country essentially in the middle of the process of reformation. So that's an overview, David, of the major political stories this morning. And as I say, David is going to talk more about that one I just was. But no doubt a concerning intervention and a poorly timed one from the perspective of the Ukrainians as we launch this quite significant summit in Granada. Well, thank you very much, Francis, for all of that. So James Crisp, The Telegraph's Europe editor, thank you so much for your time today. It's great to get you back onto the podcast. Before we talk about this leaked document, would you just like to add anything to some of the reportage of Francis just then, his analysis there regarding the state of play of global US-EU support to Ukraine? 
Yeah, thanks, David. I think what's really interesting is you look at the European Political Community uh, Summit today in Spain, and really the the kind of a Banquo's ghost hanging over it isn't a European country at all. It's the US. We've had a situation where aid to Ukraine was stripped out of a bill to prevent a federal government shutdown. And since that happened this week, Biden convened a call with NATO leaders, G7 leaders, Sunak, leaders of Japan, Canada, basically Western, pro-Ukrainian Western allies to reassure them that American support is still coming. Now, if you put this in a sort of a context where we've had Ficho triumph in Slovakia, now he hasn't formed a, a government yet, there'll have to be a coalition government, but it's still one of Ukraine's biggest backers has seen an election victory for a man who basically campaigned on an end to Western sanctions, on not sending another round to Kiev, to Kiev, sorry. So there is, I suppose, a sense that maybe support in the West for Ukraine is wavering for the first time. And maybe that's why President Zelensky feels the need to say, look, you don't give me the weapons now in 2028. Moscow will have rearmed and it'll be coming for countries like Estonia and other sort of border European countries, a way of concentrating minds. Now, I would suggest that there's going to be a show of support for Kiev at, at the EPC today. Now, it's true we've had this leaked document and this document says Brussels will pay £161 billion to Kiev over seven years, the length of an EU budget if Ukraine joins. Now, this is true, and that would mean unless the budget rules were reformed, and they would have to be reformed, some big changes. So there are countries which get back more money than they pay into the budget as things stand. If Ukraine and some of the other countries which look set to join the EU as part of this re-energized enlargement process, which is re-energized by the invasion of Ukraine, they would become what is known as net contributors. So they pay more in than they get out, rather than net recipients. Agricultural agricultural subsidies, these are much prized for common agricultural policy. Ukraine has 41.1 million hectares of farmland. It would become the largest recipient of these subsidies under the current rules. And in existing member states, they would be cut by up to a fifth. Now, These are all quite grabby things to read. But I mean, why has this modeling suddenly emerged? Uh, It was leaked to the Financial Times. Apparently, it was drawn up in the summer. Now, I don't think that this is some sort of plot to keep Ukraine out of uh, the EU. Uh, I think that people want Ukraine to join. But I think there is also a desire to introduce a kind of a cold dose of reality about what it would mean. It will be a significant challenge for the EU. It will mean big changes, right? And those sort of things aren't easy to agree between 27 different countries, especially when one member, and now possibly Slovakia as well, and I'm talking about Hungary and Slovakia, are quite anti-Ukrainian. So why has this come out now? I think the fact is that it is, it, it's The document has come from the EU Council, so that's a representative of the EU governments rather than the European Commission. And the European Commission has been very enthusiastic about Ukraine's membership. So there might be a message being sent there, a warning shot sent across Ursula von der Leyen's bowels. And I think it's telling that Juncker has said what he has said. Is he saying Ukraine shouldn't join? No, but he's saying there are problems in Ukraine. He's saying there should not be any shortcuts to EU membership. And that is a view held by actually quite a lot of member state governments. The fact which you need to remember, or everyone needs to remember, is it is much, much harder to join the EU than it is to leave it. And I'm saying that as someone who spent many years covering the Brexit negotiations. It wasn't a picnic leaving it. It is harder to join. Now, I don't think that this means that the EU is going cold on Ukraine. I think, look, There's no denying the fact that if American support was to evaporate, which hopefully won't happen, but if it was to evaporate, the EU would struggle to match the money and certainly the weapons at this stage. But there are already moves afoot in Brussels. They're looking for a top-up on the EU budget at the moment. And part of that, a large billions of euros 
in that top-up is earmarked for Ukraine. Now, there's a problem, of course, Hungary. So apparently the European Commission is looking at unfreezing half of EU funds which were frozen, meant for Hungary, but were frozen over concerns over Budapest backsliding on the rule of law, human rights, democratic standards. They're looking to unfreeze that in order to secure Hungary's support for the budget increase. Any budget increase requires unanimous support. Now, I think what we can see here is EU officials keen not to have the same kind of funding cliff edge that we've seen occur in Washington. But I think also, if Ficho can form a uh, government and does, say, join up with Hungary, was getting a sign of some of the other problems that could come further down the track when you have this kind of potentially expanding soft underbelly, which presumably will only bolster Putin and his determination to drag the war out longer in the expectation that Western support will eventually flag. Thank you so much for talking us through all of that, James. It's really great to have you back on. One of the things we spoke about when we chatted about this story before the podcast was this idea, which you seem to suggest maybe isn't appreciated enough, that it's not just how difficult it is to join the EU, it's also the length of time it would take for you for Ukraine to do that. Could you just talk us through your thinking there? And maybe, if possible, what are the next steps? What happens in the next six months, years to come? Sure. Well, look, Albania has been waiting for more than a decade to join the EU. And Albania was about to join the EU, formally joined the EU, and then Bulgaria piped up. Bulgaria is another EU member state and decided it had an issue with some sort of arcane argument about the roots of the historical roots of the Bulgarian language. That meant that everything ground to a halt. So look, anyone, any single member state can block uh, a country from joining the EU. Uh, Britain was vetoed twice by uh, Charles de Gaulle, for example. We've seen uh, those sort of issues sort of rear their head. But I think, look, and that is after Albania has done the painful reforms but very difficult reforms. I mean, we're talking about absorbing EU law and everything from central bank regulation to human rights. You've got to get all of this stuff onto your law books ready to join. It has to be checked. These are highly technical, painful things. Ukraine has got a lot, a lot of hoops to jump through. So I think we're talking at least 10 years before Ukraine could even begin to consider possibly joining And even then, that is dependent on the war being over. You need to have a solid border in order to join the EU, because otherwise, how does the EU know where it ends? So simply on that practical level, it's it's hard to see Ukraine joining anytime soon. And I think Zelensky would know that. You can see it, the fact that there are six Western Balkan countries, all of whom have done far further on these reforms, who are still in the waiting room. That won't be a surprise to him, but of course, it's in his interest to keep pushing, pushing, pushing to get in as as quickly as possible. I think the other thing which is worth remembering with the what the next stages are, I think in November, the European Commission will come out with a progress report, a progress report on how well uh, Ukraine has done in all of its reforms. Ursula von der Leyen recently said they've done very well. There is always a tightrope here. You have to make sure that all the hoops are being jumped from through while still showing that there is a clear path to eventual accession so that you maintain public support. So in November, I expect Ukraine to get a pat on the back. And there are reports that in December, EU leaders will agree. These are reports, so it may not happen, but EU leaders will agree to give the green light to formal accession negotiations, which is yet another step. But just because you're going to have formal accession negotiations, they can go on for years and years and years and years as well. At the moment, the prospect of EU membership for Ukraine is about sending support to Ukraine. It is saying we see you as one of us, as part of the West. It is about making a stand in the face of Russian aggression. And Ukraine is... Uh, a European country, after all. So I think the reality of joining, it's hard, it's difficult, it takes a long time. But at the same time, the reason why we're going through this process now 
is about moral support rather than any prospect of Ukraine joining, well, I would say for a decade. Emmanuel Macron has suggested a decade. James, you spoke a moment ago about, I think, an increased acknowledgement within Europe that America may reduce its support for Ukraine or pull out. How do you account for the hesitancy within the EU or European countries more broadly about this issue of rearmament? Because if it is fundamental to the future of Europe, as many countries have publicly articulated that it is what happens in Ukraine, why are they not arming more quickly? Do you mean arming Ukraine or do you mean rearming themselves? Well, I suppose both in a sense, like it, it be, because they're not separate things. <laughs> because if you arm on one on the one hand, then you can then be giving those weapons as we've seen to Ukraine. So I suppose they are doing an enormous amount, as we've discussed on the podcast many times. But there isn't that sense of, OK, well, we've got to arm and increase our defence budgets much more so that not only are we prepared if things were to go sour and also for that to act as an effective deterrence, but also so we have those weapons in storage to give to Ukraine. I mean, I think, as I've said before, uh, the EU moves slowly. I don't think this is due to a lack of desire, but I think there's a desire to have a European-wide response to this problem. So look, we're in wartime. It is difficult for smaller countries, for your Luxembourgs and your even your Hungries, to get a hold of defence contracts, right? because there is a big queue for people who want these weapons, especially now. So there's a move towards a kind of a common European policy on this, where you would negotiate as a block, because you're a bigger country, you'll be able to drive down the prices, you'll be able to get ahead in the, ahead of the queue. Not a country, but a block. But of course, that has its difficulties as well. Pooling resources to buy defence is, there's a mental block. That is a big step forward in, in integration. But I can see it happening. We saw it happening. People, there are certain people high ups in the commission who refer to the coronavirus pandemic. And we'll remember that the EU's response to the coronavirus pandemic, vaccines in particular, was quite slow to begin with. But it quickly built up speed. They ramped up vaccine production and maybe soon became, I think, the number one producer of vaccines in the world relatively soon and number one exporter. They never sort of tired of going on about that. They want to do the same with the defence industry. I think it'd be interesting for Britain to to be a part of that, actually. And I think with the improved relations since the signing of the uh, Windsor Framework, that is more possible. There are moves, French-led moves, certainly, for a sort of a more bolstered European defence industry. And of course, but then you're going to have discussions. Should we do buy European first? If you do buy European first, are you? does that mean you're necessarily getting the best equipment? What about the UK? We're sort of European, we're sort of not. And all of this stuff needs to be worked out, and it hasn't been yet. But they are looking to scale up. And one of the things, interestingly, about the Americans, if we think that this wobble over some Republicans in, in the Congress is, is worrying, European leaders, imagine if Trump gets in. There is real concern that if Trump gets in among Europe, among European leaders who remember him braiding them at the NATO summit in Brussels over their defence, talking about pulling out. There is a, they will be looking to be able to ramp up their own defence capability because they see Trump as unreliable. And he is unreliable on Ukraine. But that's my point, is that they know that. Why aren't they doing it now? Well, they are doing it. They are doing it. But, you know, you've got to get 27 countries on board. You're talking about, you're talking about laying the groundwork for a, a common defence thing. We can't even build a train line to Birmingham. Well, thank you very much, Francis, for the question. Thank you so much, James, for giving us your thoughts there. It's really fascinating. I look forward to hearing some of the emails we'll get through to bring you back on. It's really good to have your sort of your view on what's happening in the EU. I think it really adds a lot to the podcast. Dom, let's go back to some of the reporting you did at the beginning of this podcast surrounding the Black Sea. We wanted to separate the news and the analysis. So let's go into the analysis. What do you think this all means? Yeah, so why is it important? I think it's because it shows yet again how we need to take a step back and look at all the military activity to get an idea of how this war is being fought and any comments on its progress and not just focus, as many do, on metres gained or lost or villages taken or not in the the counteroffensive in the south. Now, last week's Defence in Depth video, I kind of looked at this and I said we are looking at separate 
things, episodes in the war, almost through a drinking straw. And what we need to do is, like I say, to take a step back, look wider and see how all the things are linked. So you know, Russia hasn't just done this for fun. They've just they've not moved their Black Sea fleet, the majority of it, out of Sevastopol to elsewhere just for something to do. I mean, that's because of huge pressure that's been applied by Ukraine. So this pressure on Crimea through various means, not least which is the, the storm shadow strikes that destroyed the Black Sea Fleet headquarters, and we think it's hit a submarine as well. Ukraine hasn't got a navy, and they've sunk the the flagship of the Black Sea Fleet and a submarine. I mean, not bad if you haven't, if you haven't got a navy. So there's this huge pressure that's being applied there. And this war is often characterised, like many wars are, often characterised as a, bo- a boxing match, and that is not a silly and not an inaccurate analogy. But I think sometimes we should also see it, in this war in particular now, as a tug of war, where there's huge pressure, not a lot of movement, but a, the potential for a sudden shift. And I think the movement of the Black Sea Fleet in and of itself might not be very dramatic, might not, it's not a violent act, but it does show the pressure that's being applied in the background. So rather than just focus on the front and in the south and say, well, they've, they're not getting any closer to Totmak or Metatopol or, or what have you, just have a view more broadly and see these huge sort of the pressure of these big tectonic plates. War is a political clash of wills, as we know, and it takes place in many different areas. And not a lot can happen for quite some time, and then it could be a sudden dramatic shift. And so I think... Just remember that you know, Russia wouldn't have chosen to do this unless they felt the Black Sea Fleet was under great pressure. Now, it doesn't remove the threat. The, the caliber cruise missiles are still there. They might be slightly further away in range, but there's still a very potent force there from the Black Sea Fleet. But it just, I think it speaks of this underlying pressure that, that's being applied through different mechanisms and invites us yet again just to see this war through its entirety, not just one single lens of looking at how many tanks have been pushed forward down in the south. So I think it it is a significant uh, moment and, and one that we need to keep a close eye on. Thank you very much for that, Dom. Let's move to our final thoughts then. James, would you like to go first? I suppose the thing which has been most interesting really this week is perhaps we're seeing the first signs that the war fatigue that Putin perhaps has been relying on. I don't think it's come. There's been like little warning signs that it might be coming. But I think that's hopefully going to get stamped on and, and sorted out. But it's it's difficult. But I can see that from a European leader's perspective, they're going to make as much noise as possible to stress that Zelensky has their support and will continue to have their support. But the reason they're doing that now is because there are questions over US support. Thank you very much, James. And just a note to listeners, we'll be bringing Joe Barnes on tomorrow, who's in Granada at the summit, so we can hear his thoughts tomorrow. Dom Nichols. Yeah, thanks. I'd just like to draw attention to an article by our US correspondent, David Millwood, who's written up about this US military action. They've said they've sent Ukraine more than a million rounds of ammunition that they seized from Iran. Now, this is believed to be the first time Washington has transferred weapons confiscated by another country to Ukraine since the start of the the full-scale invasion. Obviously, comes just after the, the whole Congress thing. Um U.S. naval forces, as we know, have been intercepting fishing vessels suspected of carrying Iranian weapons destined for Yemen for quite some time. But U.S. CENTCOM, Central Command, said one of their naval assets seized 1.1 million rounds of 7.62 ammunition from a vessel being used by Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps to arm the Houthi rebels in, in Yemen. And this is okay. So it's not it's, a, it's small arms ammunition. It's quite a lot of it for the old for the rifles, but it. It's an interesting precedent. I wonder if this will in some way re- reignite the debate about what about seized assets, seized Russian assets, and could they be sold off? Could the money be sent? And what other weapons are there going to be? And how the if there's a how is Iran getting the Shahids up to? We think it's going via the Caspian Sea, so it's very unlikely that they'll be addicted. But I think it's just an interesting interesting development and one that one that needed to be noted. Thank you, James and Dom. Francis Sternley. Well, thanks, David. I mentioned on Tuesday the issue of Russian disinformation campaigns and their increased proliferation of late. I've received some very interesting emails from listeners on this with examples of the subtle practices which are enabling such narratives to be spread by bots. I'm grateful to those who've written in and I'm hopeful that we'll be able to do a deep dive into it in due course. In that segment, I also discussed why I felt this 
arguably is an issue of national security as much as it is an issue of free speech. I had a message from one listener as a result who asked whether I was therefore suggesting censorship for such posts by that, that proliferate Russian na- narratives. Absolutely not. I don't believe any authentic voice should be silenced. I was speaking more about how to stop the proliferation of bots promoting such content. I think it's really important to hear the voices of people who we may disagree with on this issue. I know some listeners were frustrated at the inclusion of our interview with Victoria Coates yesterday, President Trump's former Deputy National Security Advisor. But such voices really matter in the debate developing over the issue of Ukraine within the Republican Party. And I'd much rather go in with a sort of professional outlook, keep quiet and let them talk than I would going in with a hostile manner, pulling apart everything they said. It just wouldn't be much of an interview if I did that. And I, we trust our audience to make up their own minds. Personally, I felt that interview revealed much about the degree to which Republican scepticism about Ukraine is often framed uh, towards anger around Biden and the Democratic Party. One wonders how, you know, whether this was just an inevitable part, given how hostile and divisive things have become in the United States. But I thought we saw saw that quite clearly in that interview. I knew it would ruffle a few feathers, but our approach on the podcast is to let people speak and articulate their perspective in full, however much we might personally disagree with it. It's worth remembering that some of these people might be in positions of even greater authority in the months and years ahead. One has to understand them, if only to know how to critique their arguments. But I want to end, David, as we often do with the news we're hearing that Moscow has opened a patriot education camp in annexed Crimea. That's coming from the Ukrainian parliament this morning. The verified details are sketchy, but it would seem to be another of the centres like those that we've described seen in Russia, where children, uh, many of them kidnapped from Ukraine, of course, are effectively indoctrinated to believe Russian narratives about Ukraine and even to hate their own country of birth. It comes off the back of figures released by Kyiv saying that thousands of civilians are unaccounted for since Russia launched its invasion last year. More than 26,000 people are wanted and are missing under special circumstances. Of these, 11,000 are civilians and 15,000 are military personnel. If anything, I believe these estimates are low. And it's just worth remembering that when we cite these statistics, which we have to when we're talking in, in an abstract factual sense, that each one of those is an individual with families who are left asking questions about what has happened to their loved ones. The lack of stark international awareness of these facts is arguably leading to their proliferation on a daily basis. They are war crimes. So one would argue that it's really vital that politicians articulate what is going on to the populations at large, because it seems that so much of the discussion one hears about Ukraine at the moment is about the counteroffensive and whether it's succeeding, whether Ukraine is losing the war. But really, there's another element to this, which should be very much front and centre, I think. Over Conservative Party conference, I interviewed a number of British and Ukrainian MPs. First today, you'll hear from Alicia Kearns. Alicia is chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee. We talked about Russia's kidnapping of children, lessons from the Balkans, and bipartisan support for Ukraine here in Britain. Here's our conversation. Well, thank you so much for your time. Would you just introduce yourself to the listeners? Tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got interested in Ukraine as a subject within government, and what you do in government. Sure. So my name is Alyssa Kearns and I'm the member of Parliament for Rutland and Melton. And I'm also chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee. So I spend a great deal of my time looking at Ukraine and how we support our friends and allies there. The first time I worked on Ukraine was actually way back in 2016, when I was sent by the British government to Ukraine to train the Ukrainian government and its civil servants on how to tackle disinformation. So whether it be the Russians trying to undermine their society through it all the way through to dealing with kind of national emergencies and things like forest fires. And ever since then, I've had a real passion for that country and for supporting our friends and allies there. In the uh, Fringe event at conference I heard you speak at yesterday, that passion came through when you were talking about the, you called them concentration camps, Putin's concentration camps for children stolen from Ukraine. Could you tell us a little bit about why you use that language and what you see him doing there? No, absolutely. So look, I think it's got through slightly what's happening there, but not enough. So look, the Russians are kidnapping children, sometimes in the guise of fake school trips, sometimes literally just ripping them out of their homes. And what they have turned Crimea into is the part military base, 
and part concentration camp for children. And essentially these children are living in these concentration camps where they are forced to deny, refuse, reject everything about their upbringing, who they really are, the fact they are Ukrainian, some of them being forced to take new names. And the children that are coming out of these concentration camps, because somehow there are some charities managing to get them out, they are reporting that they are being physically tortured if they do not know as they are told, if they refuse to adopt these new names, if they refuse to supposedly accept that they are meant to be Russian. And this is actually a form of genocide if you look at the legal definition. So it forms under cultural genocide when you try to take children. And it's the same as what China is doing in Tibet, the same as what they are doing in Xinjiang. And I think it's really important. It's something I'm going to be trying to raise more awareness of over the next few months is exactly what's happening to Ukrainian children. How are you going to do that? So I'm planning to go back to Ukraine again, and I'm going to try and meet with these charities. I'm going to meet with Save the Children. I'm going to meet with the UN. I'm going to meet with the Vatican and other countries who I believe are trying to do something. And I'm going to work out what we can do and what pressure I can put on the UK government. And fundamentally, what solutions or activities there may be, because we all recognise it's awful. And yes, that awareness is important. But actually, I'm focused on what solutions are there. What can we do to rescue children, to bring them back to their families and ultimately reduce some of the trauma that we're seeing in Ukraine. When you talk about this issue with your colleagues in government at the moment, what kind of reaction do you get? I mean, we've been here trying to understand Conservative support for Ukraine. It'd be good if you could just take us into some of those conversations, maybe. So I know that, look, our former ambassador, Melinda, she feels incredibly strongly about this. She's of Jewish heritage as well, and it's something that matters to her. She's met some of these children who have returned. Last night, I sat down with three Ukrainian MPs who were here at conference, and we spoke about it. And obviously for them, it's devastating. You know, this is something we have to do more. It isn't easy. Of course it isn't. And I know the Attorney General, Victoria Prentice, feels particularly passionately about this. Her daughter was in Ukraine shortly before the renewed illegal invasion. And she really cares about finding a way for us to take action on this. Another thing you spoke about at the event was learnings from the wars in the Balkans in the 90s. I thought that was a really interesting point because you sort of talked about how we need to make sure we've got the right lessons and apply the right learnings to what's happening in Ukraine. Could you talk a little bit more about that and what should our lessons be? So I think there's quite a few parallels we can draw. So first of all, the kind of Belgrade-centric, Belgrade-first policy that we had in the 90s, the same thing we had in Russia. And when it came to Ukraine and the former kind of USSR countries, that is dangerous. You enable autocrats, you focus your entire activities and decisions around how to mitigate those organisations or to work around the worst excesses of those dictators and autocrats. The second is that After the war in Bosnia, essentially there were women whose entire male families had been completely wiped out. But these women had also been traumatised, these women had been raped, and they were forced to rebuild their societies without ever really being able to be given that psychosocial support that is really needed to rebuild a society. And so for me in Ukraine, there was a really terrifying piece of research just before the renewed league invasion that essentially showed that the average Ukrainian thought that rape was something that just happened to women. It's something that is part of what women go through in their lifetimes. That is unacceptable. If you then put that in the context of a war where the Russians are purposefully using sexual war crimes as a tool of terror to terrorise civilians and also, again, as a control mechanism and as a tool of trauma, We need to make sure that we change the conversation in Ukraine now so that people do come forward and get support and support they deserve, but also so that we get the justice for these women and also so that they are in the best possible place to rebuild Ukraine once the conflict is over. You mentioned your experience talking to Ukrainian MPs here at conference. What's it like to talk to them almost on a human level? I've spent a lot of time talking to Conservative MPs and Ukrainian MPs here. But away from the politics, how do you sort of try and support them? What, what kind of things do you talk about? It must, it must be quite difficult. So these these guys are my friends now. They mean the absolute world to me. And, you know, when the Renewed League Invasion happened, I invited those four female Ukrainian MPs to come across to Parliament. And they completely won over the British people and told them the reality of what was happening. It is a privilege to be their friend. You know, Ukrainians, they are lion-hearted people and their women are even more so. And what's been really interesting is because the men have been on the front line, it's been the women parliamentarians who've been going around the world winning and shoring up the support for their country. We talk about our children, we talk about our plans for after the war. It is difficult not to constantly be drawn back to discussing the war. And it is also difficult because I feel a real duty to try and lift their hearts and talk to them about something else and try and arrange for us to do something lighthearted when they're out of Ukraine. But they actually find it more difficult being out of the country than being in the country. When you're in the country, you're in the war, you're focused on what you need to do, missiles going ahead, air sirens. When you're out of the country, there's a sense of guilt that they feel. 
And so although I want to give them the opportunity to take a moment to breathe, to sleep peacefully, they find that very difficult. But back in February, when I went with, I think, 14 other chairs of Foreign Affairs Committees, the anniversary of the renewed illegal invasion, we went for a very clear purpose, which was that we wanted to try and bring some relief. And Putin, there wasn't a single airstrike in Kyiv for those 24 hours that we were there because Putin couldn't afford to bomb and kill 15 chairs of Foreign Affairs Committees. And for those Ukrainian friends, I remember it being eight o'clock at night and I said to them, please, let's just go for a drink. We just need to have a moment where we're not planning what more we can do to support you. They suddenly realised there hadn't been an airstrike and just that relief. But also they said the joy of being able to host someone meant that they weren't thinking about the war full time. They were able to think about, you know, let us treat our friend, let's show her, you know, Ukrainian hospitality. The Ukrainians are a wonderful people and they are our friends and for me, these will be lifelong friends who mean the world to me. How do you go about having those essentially slightly more difficult conversations with your Ukrainian counterparts? There was talk on the panel, a fairly open talk about some of the issues with Ukrainian politics, transparency, even corruption. How do you approach those kind of conversations? So it is a cross-party delegations that we deal with from Ukraine. But actually, what I found really interesting about Ukrainians is they don't take it as an attack when you talk to them about need to reform judiciary. And I have to say, I, I give enormous credit to Zelensky What other country, while being at war, says we're also going to reform our judicial processes, making sure there's more accountability, that we try and deal with corruption more? Most people say we can't do both at once. Give us a moment. They have tried to do both, but there is a long way for their society to come as yet. I have always found them completely open. We've had tough conversations. I remember back in February, I kicked off a conversation about the fact that I wasn't confident that if Ukraine tried to liberate Crimea, the West would fall with them. And I remember my Ukrainian friend saying to me, what are you saying, that we shouldn't do it? And I said, no, I'm saying we need to have the international conversation now because I worry if that we wait until you see the Sea of Azov and you're on the verge of taking and moving towards Crimea, that support will fall back. But I said the same thing to Zelensky when I sat down with him in February. And what I found with every Ukrainian interlocutor is they are so open to having that difficult and honest dialogue. And I think that's an enormous credit to them. Did anything surprise you about your visits there or anything surprise you about meeting Zelensky? What was that like? No, I mean, Zelensky gave an hour and a half of his time and he was upfront and frank and honest. And it wasn't one of those performative meetings you sometimes have in diplomacy. This is a man who is fighting for his country with every breath that he takes. And we were able to have a really frank back and forth about what we need to do in terms of equipment, in terms of Crimea, in terms of diplomacy, in terms of those countries who weren't doing all they could to support Ukraine. If I'm honest, it's the bravery and the lack of exhaustion of the Ukrainian people that genuinely blows me away and I find myself trying to hold back tears when I'm with them. But also we need to create that space for those MPs as well because the trauma they carry on a daily basis, they don't even realise just how much they are suffering. And, you know, they've been to places, Butcher, when it was liberated, all of the MPs went and they were the ones seeing severed limbs in the middle of the street, meeting the women who'd just come out of those rape basements. What we are asking of these people when they serve their country is incredibly difficult. Something that's really interested me over the past two days being here at conference is discussion about some things that potentially aren't sort of top in the news. I mean, we see sort of tanks being delivered, discussions about aircraft, that kind of thing. And you can see how that makes a news story because you've got the image, you've got the headline. You talked a little bit yesterday, and forgive me if I get this wrong, is it war, war risk insurance? Yes. Could you tell us, and I've heard it mentioned quite a few times in different fringes, why is this so key uh, and, and why do we need to talk about it more? So look, we want to help rebuild Ukraine and that rebuilding has started already. We should be incredibly proud that Britain has been rebuilding, for example, the blown up train bridges, which has allowed, you know, equipment, but also food to get back on the road across Ukraine. But if we want to rebuild and we held the Ukraine Rebuilding Conference, we need to give investors the confidence that A, Ukraine has the right regulatory framework and everything we talked about in terms of corruption, but also that actually they will have some sort of protection because at the moment there is no form of kind of insurance when it comes to operating in a place where there is a war ongoing. And we, as a foreign affairs committee, pushed the government on this. And I'm so proud because this is a real innovation. This is the best of British. It is the British government coming together with British private sector and legal know-how to create an innovative model, which is a war risk insurance, that is allowing private sector to do what it does best, but with that absolute assurance and support from the British government in terms of insurance. It's never been done before. It is an incredible achievement. So just to be clear, this is sort of my layman's explanation. I'm a private company. I want to do business in Ukraine. I need insurance to do that. That previously wasn't available. And now the British government has has 
brought this together and you can do it. Is that roughly right? Yes. And what we saw was as a result that unlocked enormous private sector investment that we saw at the Ukraine Recovery Conference. My final question really is about bipartisan support for Ukraine. Mm. So we're here at the Conservative Party conference speaking yeah. to conservative politicians. And I've been asking most people, what are your thoughts on the opposition of Labour's, mm. the British Labour Party's position on Ukraine? Do you have confidence if Labour formed the next government and the Conservatives found themselves in opposition? What are your feelings ab- about this? How have you felt found working with Labour politicians towards this? My, my sense is it's been very bipartisan and very positive, but it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts. So my perspective is we cannot allow it to become a partisan issue. It has to remain something where the British Parliament and the British people are united. And when I go across Europe, that isn't necessarily the case. So I am incredibly proud that in Britain, no one is talking about after the next British election, were the Conservatives not to be in power, whether our commitment to Ukraine would falter. And that matters because the message it sends to Putin, you can look at Slovakia and have questions, you can look at Hungary and Austria and other countries, but the UK, who have been the first in are absolutely resolute. But I have to say, there is massive political will on the Conservative side. Very few other countries, in fact, we were the only one, were arming Ukraine as early as we did, sending me in 2016 to teach them to do counter disinformation. We have been at the forefront time and time again. And that was a Conservative policy I'm very proud of. But I think going forward, there has to be this view. It doesn't matter who is in power in the UK. We will stand by Ukraine. Well, we've seen the Serbian build-up of arms on, on the border with, with Kosovo. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your, your thoughts on this? So this is something I've been warning about over the last year, and I really wish that my worst fears weren't coming true. What we have seen over the last year is a continued escalation from Belgrade. So first of all, we saw them interfere in Kosovan, northern Kosovan uh, elections, where they told the Serb-Kosovan community not to participate. That is political interference. We then saw a mob which attacked NATO troops, where we saw people seriously injured. We then saw the kidnapping of three Kosovan police. Serbian forces went across into Kosovo, kidnapped them and took them to Serbia and held them um, for a number of days. And now we have seen the killing of a Kosovan police officer by Serbian armed and backed paramilitaries operating in the north. This is my worst possible thought. And it goes back to, again, having a Belgrade-centred approach. There has been no balance from the US and the EU who have been leading this process. And ultimately, the UK needs to find a backbone. We have a historic responsibility to Kosovo, more than most. Kosovo's success relies on the UK stepping up so that we have allowed ourselves to be removed from the process of normalising relations between Kosovo and Serbia is absolutely wrong. We need to find a backbone. I'm grateful to Grant Shapps for the deployment of the strategic troops, the 100 or so that are going. But there is a lot more to be done and it could have been done sooner. This is deterrence diplomacy. We cannot afford second conflict frontiers. We've opened up within Europe and there is a meaningful risk thereof. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Alicia. As said, at Conservative Party conference, I also spoke to some Ukrainian MPs who were present. Here's Dmitry Nataluka, People's Deputy of Ukraine from Sluha Narodu. That's the servant of the People Party, Zelensky's own party. I wanted to know from Dmitry what serving as an MP is like during wartime and his most powerful memories over the past 20 months. Here's Dmitry. It was important for the people, for the population to see that we did not run away. We stay in Kiev, we stay in the parliament, the parliament is functioning, it is working. And yes, it was a a huge risk for our lives because our anti-air system was far from today, including with your help. Back at that time, nobody knew what we were capable of, whether we were capable of taking down any Russian missiles at all. But nevertheless, we took this risk. And since that day, there hasn't been a month when I didn't meet someone and he would tell me, listen, that day when we saw the parliamentarians being in session, We felt such a relief. It it meant a whole lot for us. It meant that, you know, the government is in place, the the parliament is in place, the country is working, nobody ran away. So we have to be brave, we have to to struggle. Uh, So when you hear things like this, it it gives you a lot of motivation, it it inspires you, but it was incredibly scary. That day, I remember that day very, very clearly, it was scary as hell. But I feel proud that I am a parliamentarian right now. And uh, in these times of turmoil for my country, I have this opportunity to show at least some little piece of leadership. What are the concerns of your constituents at the moment then? And how, do you, how are you able to respond to them? The concerns are always the same. When the war is going to stop, when are we going to win? Are we doing enough? Is, is the government doing enough? 
Do we have the resources? Do we have the, the support of our allies? Are we tracking and tackling corruption as we are supposed to? So things like this. And of course, it would be probably not correct to expect for one to wage war keeping the same standard of life, right? So of course, the constituency is also worried and preoccupied with their uh, standards of life. But nevertheless, everyone is understanding that we have to bear, we have to endure because this is the time when everyone has to do a little sacrifice for a greater victory. You're here at the Conservative Party conference. Has anything surprised you about what you've seen here and heard here? What surprised me is how unwavering is uh, the UK in its support to, to Ukraine, because unfortunately we are witnessing a number of U-turns in, in different countries, in different governments that have been supporting us before since, since the invasion started, the full-scale invasion started countries like Slovakia, for instance, uh, we are very worried regarding the states because some of the Republican members of some of the members of the Republican parties are very hardcore anti-Ukraine right now. And uh, here it was important to understand has the mood changed? Has the commitment changed? What is the, the, the parties that is currently in government? What does it think about the, the ongoing developments in, in Ukraine? And um, That is why I'm here, to have a first-person understanding from, from my colleagues, from, from other parliamentarians, to learn from them what we can do more efficiently, where we should put more focus on which problems and issues that they are concerned with. And um, no, the, the, the only thing that shocked me in a good way is how unwavering is still the support. Yesterday at a fringe event, you said that the UK had been the boldest ally of Ukraine. What do you think the UK should do in the future to sort of keep that title, if you like. I studied here. I did my master's in the UK. And a professor of mine, he told me once when it all started in 2014, he told me it might take some time for us to make all the decisions, to set up the processes. But once we're on it, we will not let go. And this is precisely what I'm seeing now. And it's incredible how you guys were always the first to react. We're always the first to support In, in terms of what can be done more, I, I outlined it yesterday, I think. We would really appreciate your soft power to be used in Europe, across the, the ocean, to influence the, the governments of other countries, to explain to them how crucial it is to not let Putin get away with it, to not let Russia and, and then tyranny get over democracy and then, and then the Western world that we're living in. So the UK has an incredible influence, has an incredible prestige. You are well known for being able to look in the long term to strategically assess the dangers and the risks. What we would appreciate is you taking a role of communicating with other countries that might feel a bit skeptical right now. We know that a huge affection for Boris Johnson is in Ukraine for what he did. What do you think the Ukrainian mood is and attitude is towards Rishi Sunak? And do you think maybe he should be doing more? Or I mean, what's your take on the current leader of the country? I mean, you have to understand that the thing is that we're becoming very emotional in Ukraine. When everything is at stake, when the world as you have known it before is literally falling around you, everyone who expands a hand of assistance becomes not just your friend, but literally a lifesaver. And any leader who was in charge of its government in the beginning of the first phase of war is a semi-hero in Ukraine, you know, in a way. And for, for a good reason. For a good reason. I mean, I think they, they, they will deserve it. With Sunak, I don't think there is a, a difference because he is the leader of a government who is doing an incredible job in terms of supporting Ukraine. He's keeping the pace. He's even advancing the pace. I think he, he's putting a lot of effort on the diplomatic front, on, on the training of Ukrainian soldiers and pilots. So everyone is happy. And I think that the, the image of the UK in general in Ukraine is absolutely positive. When you look back over the past 20 months, as, as your time as an MP serving during wartime, what is the one memory that would stand out for you as just being something truly historical that you, that you witnessed? I think at around 11 o'clock in the morning on the 24th of February, we received a message from our Ministry of the Internal Affairs, um, the unfortunately deceased Mr. Monostirsky, that we can go to a police, central police department, to the headquarters of the police, and collect some weapons for ourselves. And uh, when we arrived there, 
you, you should understand that it's it's like the UK Central Police Office, the Scotland, like Scotland Yard. The Scotland yeah. Yard. Like imagine the building of the Scotland Yard. I mean, it's a symbol, right? It's a symbol of fortitude, of, of power. And you arrive there and you see that there is a black smoke going from the inner court of the police headquarters. And when I entered the inner court, I realized that everyone was burning documents. So literally, policemen were running around, dragging bags with documents, throwing in the huge trash cans and burning them. And I realized that the police HQ is preparing for a siege. And that thought makes you realize how serious it is. I mean, of course, you can hear the explosions, of course, but you cannot see the enemy. And that was the first moment when I realized that if the police headquarters are preparing for a siege, then it's, it's critical. The, the only thing I can tell you, like an analogy, right? Imagine black smoke going over the, the Scotland Yard. It was a horrifying picture, absolutely horrifying picture. So for me, I think that was one of the strongest memories I have from day one. My final question is just to maybe bring it back to the people who, who are suffering the most, the civilians and people fighting. What do you hear from friends, family back in Ukraine who, who are potentially in the armed forces or suffering from Russian occupation or strikes? What are they telling you at the moment? It's interesting how all of a sudden the state as an institution became critical and important. So before that, I would dare to say we, we are a, a young political nation, right? Politically, we're just 30 years old. So Ukrainianness, if I may, was a thing that was a bit hard to grasp. And we had this history of a joint history with a lot of countries from the post-Soviet bloc. We had some joint language aspects and so on and so forth. There were people who would be telling you before it all started that it doesn't really matter, does it? Like in what country we are living, how formally it is called. As long as we are fine, as long as we're doing well, we don't care what the government is and what the flag is. There were people like that. After this, after the full-scale invasion, after Russia attacked, everybody understood that the state of Ukraine is the only safe circumstance and environment for a person to survive in Ukraine. Because if you accept the Russian point of view, which is everyone who is not Russian in the post-Soviet countries is a deviation, because you're all supposed to be Russians, if you don't understand that you're a deviation, it, it literally threats your life. It, it menaces your life. Right now, of course, it is a tragedy. Of course, we are losing a lot of great and then brightest people of our generation. But we understand why we're doing it, because this is literally a question of survival. Is there anything else you'd like to say? Any, anything I haven't asked you think is important? No, I think it is important to once again say how grateful we are and um, how thankful we are for your kind support and assistance. And uh, thank you very much. It's very much appreciated and we will never forget it. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dmitry. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.com co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Charles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.